0: Hi, and welcome to One Stop Co-Op Shop, your one-stop for co-op news and reviews. This week, the king of co-op, Steve Kingsley, and his special guest are going to review a game for you and have a related discussion. And without further ado,
1: here's Steve! Welcome to One Stop Co-Op Shop. Steve here with a couple of special guests. We have a returning guest, Terrence.
0: Hi, Steve. How's it going? Good. How you been? Been doing all right, you know, playing some Marvel and Lord of the Rings since the last time you had me on.
1: <laughs> that seems accurate. <laughs> well, I'm not just here with Terrence, I'm also here with an extra special guest, James Lang from Vorpal Enterprises.
2: Hey Steve, how's it going? Extra special. I feel uh, I feel really honored. <laughs>
0: You're welcome. If you come on again, you lose the extra special title.
2: <laughs> That's right. Re- I'm only returning guests at that point. Not, yeah. No longer extra special.
1: <laughs> That's right. In this episode, we're going to talk about a system of called Vorpal, which is probably going to be interesting to a lot of our listeners and, as being a means of playing games remotely, which honestly, I think a lot of us are looking for options right now with the current pandemic. But before we jump into that, we're going to thank our Patreon supporters. This week, I'd like to thank Dave Brodzema, a co-op MVP, Ryan Olson, co-op fan, and Rando Lloyd, also a co-op fan. So I say this every week, guys, but seriously, everything you guys do for us is such a big help, and we really, really appreciate it, especially in these trying times. But with that, let's jump into the interview about Vortbolt with James. So first off, James, I'd like to ask you some fun questions, like uh, how did you get involved in board gaming? Um,
2: it, That's a good question. i um, I. You know, I, I grew up playing a lot of board games in my house. We had a really competitive household uh, when I was a kid. I'm the youngest of three boys. Um, and so you know, this was um, I don't really want to age myself, but this was in the early 80s, and there wasn't a lot of like um super you know co op type games. It was you know, it was stuff like Monopoly and Scattergories and Parcheesi and stuff. Um, and so when I was a kid, we played a lot of that, we did some DD. And then you know I became like a video game kid big time, so I kind of disappeared from board games for I don't know a decade or something. And then one of my friends was in was in Germany. You probably know where this is going. He was in Germany, and he got a copy of um, Settlers of Catan, and it was in German. And he brought it home with him to the United States, and it like became my friend group's obsession overnight, essentially. Uh, we'd never seen anything like it. We hadn't. We we never had really stayed connected to the board game industry at all. And so, uh, once we discovered that, it was just like a frog jumping from game to game, and sort of it had this incredible sense of discovery. And then, pretty much ever since then, I just um, I've been a, a fairly dedicated board gamer, um, and even more so now as I've gotten a little bit older. I play less video games and and more board games. So it's it's been a passion for. Man, I don't even want to think about it. 25 20 25 30 years.
1: <laughs> yeah, it's fun. Uh, it's surprising that uh, myself uh, my first modern board game per se was also Settlers of Catan. So it's a, it's a interesting to see how many of us were were affected by that game.
2: Yeah, I like to hear that I like I like people saying Settlers of Catan also cuz I I I was on another podcast that will not be named where they gave me grief for calling it Settlers of Catan instead of just Catan. Uh, which i guess now that's what it's called i didn't even realize that so
1: <laughs> yeah they changed the name of that one
2: <laughs> yeah so i called it just settlers and i was i was given a hard time about it but um, but yeah the <laughs> box that we had we it was it, it was called seedler and that's what we we called it because it was in german and all the cards were in german and luckily my friend uh, spoke german and so he would he would explain what all the cards you know did and then finally when it came out in the us it was like a absolute day one purchase for me so i could actually um I could take it with me to college. And yeah, it was one of those things where, you know, I don't know if you guys um, feel this way sometimes with board games when you talk to people who, who don't pay attention to it, but it's almost like having secret knowledge. You like crack open a board game and show it to somebody and they're like, holy smokes. You know, I didn't I don't even know anything like this existed. And for like a <laughs> while, I'd have people over to my house and be like, hold on, let me show you this thing. It's going to blow your mind. And And that was a cool feeling. And I think that you still get that out of the board game industry today. I mean, it's obviously more popular, but um but still when i find a cool new game and and show it to my family or or to my friends or whatever for some reason that feels more exciting to me than um than sort of uh you know showing a new video game or something like that i don't know why but it maybe the physical components is the is the reason but that's always been a a neat part of the hobby for me
1: yeah i find that fascinating and how we're so engrossed in the hobby like this is almost second nature to us but it's a significant portion of the populace that doesn't isn't really exposed to the hobby from as a whole, right? They see a few games trickle in on like some of the, the mass market stores like Target or Walmart or whatever. Uh, but it, even today, as having a discussion with someone like, oh yeah, we do a podcast and YouTube channel on board games. Like, oh, what type of board games? Oh yeah, like co op ones. Like, what's that mean? Would you have an example? And uh, I said pandemic, because that's probably the most popular one. And like, oh, oh, yeah, I think my dad played that once or twice. And so it's starting to get there a little bit. But yeah, it's uh, it's pretty amazing how that differentiation.
2: Yeah, I'm, I'm excited, like in recent developments, especially, right? Like, I think there's been a lot more coverage, probably in like national news sources and stuff, of just the idea of like board game nights and those types of things, especially during, you know, like the, the pandemic period. But um, what's got me super excited is just the idea that, like if you're a kid today, and your parent just goes to like Target, and is like, oh, I gotta, I want to buy a board game for my kid or whatever. You know, when I was a kid, it was like probably buying, you know, the Game of Life or some something, something like that, right? But now it's like, I mean, last week release or whatever in Target, you can buy Gloomhaven, you know, or or you can buy any, you can buy Horrified, you can buy those Prospero Hall games, right? So it's like the the probability of those games getting into a kid's hands now is so much higher than when it was I got to go to a, you know, a, a game store, a hobby store or whatever to even find and hope that they had a copy of the game on hand. So, yeah, I think I think that's very exciting because I think that the the industry is, has so much growth opportunity that like those type of developments is what's going to do it. Not so much Kickstarter, even though I love Kickstarter. Uh, it's like games being in Target that's just going to fuel it.
0: For sure. I, I look forward to playing life, the game of life when I was a kid, because that was like the pinnacle of board gaming, I feel like back in the day. <laughs>
2: Yeah, it had all those cool pieces, right? You got the car, and yeah. you got to put the pegs in there and stuff. But like, if you if you didn't get the doctor, you know, you were screwed. <laughs> <laughs> Which maybe is is true. You know, maybe that that was a truism of uh, of the game of life.
1: <laughs> so, what type of games are your favorites? Uh, you mentioned a few now, like Settlers Catan. You mentioned Gloomhaven. Do you do you, I? I have to ask the question because this is one stop co op shop. Do you like competitive, or co op, or mixture of both?
2: I am m- mostly a competitive, or excuse me, a co-op gamer. So I don't love competitive games. They tend to stress me out a little bit. Uh, and I dip- I feel like with competitive games, you got to read your, your crowd a little bit because it can kind of ruin the night if you get people that kind of get at each other's throats or you know, get a little bit too passive aggressive or whatever. Um, so I tend to lean towards cooperative games. I got... Uh, the first one I ever got was Pandemic, which is probably like everybody's intro to a co-op game. And that game's cool. Um, but then I got Arkham Horror and um, I didn't know what I was getting into. I was like, oh, I'm just going to go to a game store. And I asked a guy at the game store, you know, what do you think is good? And I got Arkham Horror and just the, the whole idea that like there's essentially an engine being run by the game that you have to play against. And like Arkham Horror is a hard game um, mm-hmm. and how it was difficult to win. it it totally hooked me just the idea that like four people could be sitting there together sort of like strategizing and you know applying teamwork to a board game which was which was very alien to me kind of scratched the right parts of my brain and made it so when i get people together to play these games i don't know it, it felt like this is gonna sound ridiculous but it felt like productive time it's like man we accomplished it we did it right sure sure instead of like getting to the end of the night and being like You know, I put my pieces on the wrong numbers at the beginning of Settlers and I didn't roll any freaking nines all night and I I got crushed and I didn't have a good time in co-op games like it feels like the whole group gets to, you know, have fun and not have to do a lot of sort of analysis paralysis type looking at the board and and a lot of silence while people are thinking It, it to me, it just sort of is a is a more social way to play, and that's really what I feel like I get out of board games. So gloomhaven is my big uh current thing. I got Jaws of the Lion last week and I've opened it and punched it, but I haven't played it yet. So you know I'm just I'm big into those style Dungeon Crawlery type titles.
1: Nice. Very nice. Yeah we have got quite a few co-op Dungeon Crawler fans, both on the One Stop co-op shop team and and then from our listeners and viewers, too. How
0: did you get involved
1: with Four
0: Enterprise? Like, what kind? What's like the origin story here uh, for this company? So this is,
2: um, it's a long one. So um, I, I was talking to Steve before we actually started recording. I was, a, I was a stay-at-home dad, and I guess I technically still am a stay-at-home dad. Um, but I, I have two children, and I had moved recently from uh, Wisconsin to New York, and I really was missing the the folks that I played board games with. Um, back in wisconsin and i had just gotten zombie side um season one on kickstarter and i got it home and i punched it out and i was like oh man this is unbelievable i wish i had a group of four to play this with or whatever you know and um the only person i had to play it with was my wife and so we played some some scenarios and stuff and then you know over the holidays i played with my brother and then i started thinking to myself like okay could i you know, rig up a camera from the ceiling or something, um, a webcam, and and maybe people would be able to see the board well enough and we'd be able to sort of, you know, piece it together. I was a software engineer. I guess I still am a software engineer. And um, and I was like, okay, I'll, I'll just start to <laughs> hack this thing together in my spare time while the kids are napping. And it was awful. Like, I mean, the first version of this thing was like <laughs> garbage. Um, there are a lot of pieces of this technology-wise that have come into sort of common use since I started working on this, especially the video and audio, uh, components. So, you know, we were doing it very hacked together, two computers, one to run the camera hanging from a chandelier in my house and another to do the video call. And, you know, I had sent images to my buddy so he could like have stuff on his screen or whatever. And, um, and it kind of worked. So, so what I found was the actual game part of it was, was pretty bad. I mean, it was rough, but the, the social part of it worked. So, so we actually had the conversations and had the little strategic discussions, even though he wasn't sitting uh, there with us, we, we got the, that good social feeling out of it. And I thought, okay, if I can sort of capture that in a bottle with this hacked together, awful nonsense, if we spend some actual time and kind of work on this thing, like, I think we might be able to build it, you know, then it just sort of became a project that I worked on every, I don't know, three or four months. I'd, I'd put in some hard work on it until I talked to my, a good friend of mine, Mike, who's the other software engineer on the team. And, um, and I sort of convinced him. We both don't remember how it happened. We both don't remember the conversation or, or how I asked him <laughs> to start working on, me with, or working on it with me. He is a web developer. And so he knew a lot of stuff that I didn't know and sort of like really supercharged the web side of this. And then we just started like playing with with each other on weekends and stuff. And and really, a lot of this, to be perfectly honest with you, was like convincing ourselves that it was good because we wanted to use it. And so we were very harsh critics of our own work early on to say, like, oh, that's crap. No one, you know, I'd never want to play like that. And then, you know, we kept cranking away on it and I'd show it off to people every once in a while. And then um, and then we said, all right, well, let's see if there's an audience. Uh, So we'll put it on Kickstarter Um, and you know, we kind of thought to ourselves if, if it totally flops and it's a disaster and nobody wants it or says it's stupid or whatever, well, that would, that'll be proof that there, there's not enough kind of, uh, interest to go after this thing. And then the first Kickstarter didn't go great, but we actually got a lot of, a lot of really good feedback on it. And and we really just had kind of screwed up on a lot of the Kickstarter kind of strategy. And so that was enough of a A good feeling that first one to to do a second one, and then you know, fast forward another year from there, and uh, and here we are.
0: What's the time span? Like, I I feel like you're. This could be anywhere from like five years to like three years, or you (laughs) know, it seems like. uh, It. uh,
2: I hate to admit it. It's um. So every once in a while, I'll go and I'll look into like my email, or I'll look at some photos I took of the first couple versions. Like we made the first scanning box out of like Legos and stuff. And it was just awful. Um, I believe I was working on this in 2014. I believe I was tinkering even that early. The, the current product as it currently sits is really like two years uh, of like real functional product. So those first few years was like, um, I don't know if you guys are like, uh, like hobbyists in like, you know, of weird subjects, right? So like, I'll try to build like a piece of furniture or something. And that piece of furniture will take me like 18 months to build when it should have taken, you know, like two weeks or whatever. Um, <laughs> it was true. that type of a project for a long time where it was just sort of sitting in my garage and I'd tinker with it when I had time. Um, so, yeah, I've the, the, the kernel of the idea has been there for, um, for I guess, six years.
1: I think it'd be good to inform our uh, listeners exactly what, what the pole board is. So, a better picture that we're talking about how you kind of got to this point of designing this product.
2: Yeah, sure. It's it's a web product that allows you to play tabletop games, really kind of of any type, by streaming the board using um, your cell phone in an app, and then also allowing you to scan in physical components, also using the, the, the smartphone app, into this web interface, which kind of acts as a virtual table for you to move pieces around, trade cards, um, have little components, keep track of your health experience, kind of whatever you need to do for the game. Um, but also has video and audio chat embedded right into it. So it's kind of like a mix between, you know, doing like a Google meet or a zoom call or whatever, but you kind of have all these board game specific tools available to you that'll let you share pieces, um, and game state and then actually the imagery of the table sitting in front of you. And, and our goal, really, is to let you take a game off your shelf, put it out on the table, set up your cell phone mounted above the table with an arm that is included um, in the product, and then actually just be able to play the game sitting in front of you, and the remote players can interact with you uh, in the web app, and you can play together. So it's just a really purpose-built system. So if anybody out there has ever tried to like use Google or use, you know, uh, Twitch or, or use uh, Zoom to play a board game, you probably know that it like kind of works. It almost works. Um, and that's because it's a really generalized tool. And so what we did is we built a, a really specific tool that's specific to what you would need to do for board games. And, and we're confident that, you know, essentially you can play almost anything. I mean, we, you're not gonna be able to play like dexterity games and stuff really, but,
1: <laughs> right, right.
2: but you know, anything from, from tabletop RPGs to co-op games to, you know, card games, you know, party games, kind of, we we play almost everything on it. And, um, and we've had really good results uh, pretty much across the board.
0: Yeah, I I know Steve and I are both uh, in that target audience of people who have played stuff on Google hangouts or Skype or what have you. And it works, but it's not the best experience.
2: Yeah, it's tough, right? There's a lot of combinations of issues there, right? Like it's, the, the, the resolution is kind of never good enough to be good enough for like a board. And if you're, if you're going that route, you're figuring out some way to kind of mount a camera over your table. And then the big, the big, 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 big failure one that, that was a real sticking point for me when we were trying to get going on this is maintaining or, or making secrecy available. So mm-hmm. any sort of ability to give somebody a card or you know, flip something over and 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 make it so it's not available to for everybody to know what it is. Um, that kind of ruins uh, a big percentage of games. And so, building an ability to scan in components and maintain secrecy, which is a big part of VORPAL, was a big part of making this work. And that included building essentially a we call it a, a component scanning box, but it's kind of like a, a a flatbed scanner that you put a cell phone into. And um, any card you want to load into the game, you can scan it in face down. And so the local player doesn't know what the card is, um, and the remote players can pick those cards up digitally, and then we maintain secrecy across the uh, reality um, computer barrier, essentially.
1: Yeah, when I was trying to play games remote back in the day with some group of friends, we were using like Google Hangouts for that. And I remember distinctly that secrecy being a major problem, Like it's almost impossible to do that. Do you like, do you hold the card up to the camera? It's kind of out of focus and it just doesn't work so well. And then the other thing we're trying to figure out too, is like, even with like some of like hangouts, like could we have like one camera looking at the board? So you can have enough resolution there another camera looking at, I don't know some other sideboard. So like, could you get the same person in hangouts twice to do it and you can kind of make it work, but man, you had to like do some weird workarounds to figure it out. So yeah, all these things you're talking about, I've at least personally experienced at some point in my life.
2: Yeah, and then also things, you know, dice rolling, just just stuff mm-hmm. that, you know, I, I think one of the big reasons, I mean, I don't know if everybody's like this, but one of the big reasons that I like to play games, um, aside from the social aspects, is I do like the little pieces and stuff, you know, like I, sure. like, I like seeing the pieces. I like, uh, you know, painting miniatures, although I'm pretty much awful at it. Um, <laughs> and then, you know, seeing the art, seeing the little, you know, I don't know why, I, I, it I don't know why I like the little cardboard bits and stuff. It's just, it, something about it is very attractive to, to my brain. And, um, so I tried, you know, a lot of different ways, you know, I think one of the things people always ask us is like, Oh, you know, what about tabletop simulator? What about tabletopia? Um, you know, digital only, uh, virtual tabletops. And those things are like super cool. Right. Like what those, what those teams have been able to do are, um, is incredible really. Right. Cause you're talking about really full 3d representation of a lot of components or whatever. Um, it just, those, those systems didn't work exactly right for me. I didn't enjoy them as much. I kind of felt like playing a video game and it's the type of thing where I think really kind of both, both their model of doing it and like our model of doing it um, I think exists because people like both of them. Uh, But for, for kind of my gaming use, it it just didn't fit the bill. And so, you know, after trying that, I was like, okay, I got to figure out a way to use these actual pieces. You know, I gotta, I gotta see the real art. I gotta, it's gotta look like a card, you know, it's gotta look like the real physical card. So um we we think we've accomplished that. Yeah,
0: I think that's very common with software developers specifically or people who sit in front of a computer all day that like after work you kind of want to not do that. Uh, as we're sitting here recording a podcast in front of a computer. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> but it's true it it's
2: it, it's a um it's an escape, right? Like it uh, it feels kind of old-fashioned. The, the the actual rolling of the dice. I mean, I know when you're using a system like Vorpal The remote players are still only seeing it digitally right like um so for them they are sitting in front of a laptop but at least the local players do get to interact with the real stuff and what we found and and you know some of this might just be me you know being a salesman here right but but what i what i specifically have found is the fact that i'm looking at a real table you know via the camera setup right somehow it helps, right? Cause it's like messy looking and there's pieces all over and I see the hands coming in and moving the stuff around or whatever. And, and, and that's, that's a decent facsimile for me to get the feeling of playing the game, which, is, which you can talk about all the features and stuff like forever when you talk about a tool like this. But the thing that we try to focus on is like after every session we wanna say, did we get the feeling of playing the board game from Mm -hmm. that session Um, did were we able to we get to the end and we say hey did that feel like playing betrayal legacy like everyone's played it in person was it like that when we played it remotely or you know we i use it to play a lot of journeys in middle earth and i always ask my brother like hey was that pretty close in you in your world to what you would think it was like when we were playing you know together over the holidays and you know maybe people are lying to me but but it seems like we've kind of with the, with the photos and the videos and stuff, it it, it helps um, make it feel a little bit more, I guess, physical, which is cool.
1: The other thing that's nice about the physical aspect of playing these games remotely is there's so many times we purchase games and they sit on our shelf for a while and we don't actually even break the seal, right? And we won't get the games off our shelf shame, for example. And with games, our systems like uh, Tabletop Sim and Tabletopia is we don't have to break the seal so we can still play the game but for like me i find a lot of value in actually breaking open that box and playing with a physical opponent in addition to like the tangible nature that you mentioned
2: yeah i think that i think that's a a, a huge part of it right like i bring a game home from the store i ex- i look at it when it's sitting in my car right next to me and i'm like man i can't wait to get home and open that thing up
1: <laughs> exactly um, yes. you know and,
2: and and page through the rule book and and, um, and just see kind of, you know, I mean, this sounds really nerdy and weird, but like, see how they packaged it all in the box, because I'm always interested in those types of things, right? Like, uh, this thing has all sorts of pieces. Our, our hobby has, has a problem with setup and teardown, right? So I'm always interested in Okay, how did they solve the setup and teardown problem to make it easy for me every time I get this box down? But, um, mm-hmm. but yeah, that that that's part of the allure. I think it really is, like you know, looking around at those boxes and wanting to open them up. You know, for me as a person who wants to play my physical games, and I think for a lot of people as well, being able to do that without um, sacrificing that part of the hobby, I think is is hopefully um, going to be really interesting to folks.
0: I, I'm glad you're excited about packaging. I'm looking forward to what you guys do with. Uh your Kickstarter on how you package it up and do for seven and tear down now after this discussion. <laughs>
2: yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. That that's, I'm going to, I'm going to make a note. I'm going to call Thad tomorrow and I'm going to say Thad, we got to, we got to sharpen our pencil really tight on the packaging. Um, but, um, but yeah, as a, as a, as a first time successful Kickstarter group of three, right. There's three of us. Um, and that's been, I, I guess uh, it's funny for you to bring up packaging. Cause they, like, there are so many things that some of us have done professionally in the past, but never by ourselves, really. You know, like we've we've all been in various software industries and hardware industries, um, and been involved in pretty much every step of the things we're doing right now. But it's never been wholly our show, you know. So a lot of it has been learning. You know, if you work at a big company, sometimes a lot of these things are taken care of for you. You know, like you already have a packaging vendor, you already have a, a connection to a vinyl supplier or whatever, right? So um, a big part of, I guess, the excitement, but also just sort of the anxiety of working through one of these projects is is working through the little details. Uh, like you mentioned, Terrence, just like, oh, man, we got to worry about packaging now. You know, it's not just developing a software application anymore. It's like all the little things around the outsides. So that's exciting, but also a little bit terrifying.
1: Yeah, I can imagine with especially a team of three that you can run into quite a few challenges. Uh, would you mind sharing like what are your most challenging aspects when developing Vorpal? Um, that's a good question. One of the
2: problems that that we've faced throughout the whole project is is just sort of like a many hats problem. So two of us are software engineers, one of us is, is a hardware engineer. We don't have like a dedicated marketing person on the team. We don't have like a person who's a lot of experience there, and this is just ex- one example of many that all of us sort of have to be, be doing that as well. And that sometimes is tough, right? Because it, oftentimes it's us like getting out of our comfort zone a little bit. Even like we do a lot of like streaming on Twitch, right? And even that's out of, not everybody wants to be like logging in at night and, and Twitch streaming and being like live to people. And it's just sort of the, the thing that's been tough is when you work at a company and you're a software engineer, like generally you, you write software and you sit at your desk and you do your job and, and you crank out code. And when you're trying to fulfill a Kickstarter, you're probably going to end up doing a lot more than just <laughs> writing code. You're going to be looking at packaging options. You're going to be looking at, you know, supply that comes from China and, and, and looking at the samples and trying to make decisions on those things. So um, so as a, a small team that I think has been tough, you know, because as we go along, figuring out who's doing what and, and who's going to be sort of sacrificing some of what they would consider their kind of quality time, either writing software or working on hardware to do things like marketing or to do things like um, accounting and just all the like little jobs that when you're not running your own business, you don't really have to worry about. Um, Having to do those now all as part of one project is uh, is tricky.
0: Yeah, it reminds me a lot of just, uh, I guess for context, I've worked at two startups, uh, even in the software industry and, you come into that job thinking, like you said, you're gonna sit at a desk and write software and I've had to do marketing, customer support, uh biz ops, you know, like everything under the sun kind of everyone kind of just fills in uh depending on what the business needs. You got hired for one thing, but you gotta do ten more other things.
2: Yeah, and a lot of it feels like undiscovered country a little bit sometimes, you know, because it's like uh, all right, well I gotta come up with um I got to come up with a plan for a beta, right? So, so Vorpal is currently in a beta and, uh, we, we went to beta a lot earlier than we had planned mainly because of the pandemic, right? And we, we thought, okay, we have a lot of people who are stuck in their houses, super stressed out. Our software works. It's not to the point where we would have like opened up the doors, uh, quite yet, but, Let's just give it out let's start giving it out to people let's give it out to the kickstarter backers um and let them play around with it it'll be beneficial for us a little bit stressful but hopefully people will will be able to have a little bit of fun while they're you know staying at their houses or whatever none of us had ever run a front to back beta for for you know 250 300 people with two people right so uh exactly as you mentioned terrence it's like okay well somebody's got to be the support person who's answering these questions we got to have ways to bring the issues in and, and triage them and 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 then also like teach people. So we got to produce a bunch of video content so that people know how to use the system because we don't have a lot of documentation yet or anything like that. So, um, yeah, it's just it was it's a lot of I, I assume you guys have talked to a lot of Kickstarter people in the past. Right. But it's a ton of like seat of your pants work. Um, in addition to the things you're good at, and you wish you could just like focus on the, the things you're good at, but it, you, you're never going to succeed if that's all you do.
1: So, you mentioned that you tried to get this product out quicker during the pandemic. Were there other aspects of the pandemic that affected your delivery of this product?
2: There are. I mean, definitely some things have taken um, longer than we've anticipated, specifically, you know, some of the components we're, we're sourcing from China, getting rolling with that stuff is taking a little bit longer in some instances for some of the little pieces that we're buying, just because everything in the manufacturing industry is essentially behind. It's not terrible though. Like uh, we were a little bit after when we finished, um, we were a little bit after when things were really bad um, in China, pandemic wise. So everybody's pretty much back to rolling a little bit, I think, but yeah. And then, you know, I think the other thing that um, people probably know, you know, for folks who have kids out there, the other thing that is tough is, all of all the three of us have children. Um, two of us have, mm-hmm. have young children who are now here all the time. And right. so so that has impacted just sort of our ability to be totally heads down, because now we're also, um, you know, doing some part time parenting and and um, and also doing school. Right. So while the school year was still going, it was like every day. I'm I'm also a uh, a second grade teacher, you know, so (laughs) um, so that was tough. Um, Essentially, it's led to all of us having to adjust our working schedules uh, pretty aggressively, either to really early in the morning or really late at night for a little bit uh, while we're working through a lot of the the flux of of work. So, yeah, that's been tough. I mean, I, I think everybody probably out there in the world who has had to work through this period in their house, um, probably can can tell you the same thing that it's just it's been a difficult time to be uh, to be working on stuff.
1: Yeah, I
0: can definitely relate to that. <laughs> so. uh, you were talking about the public beta, and I've had the pleasure of being part of the public beta. I, I remember when I saw the email, as one I signed up that day, that I saw it. Uh, really excited to just you know try it out um, and got to even play with Steve on the beta, which was cool. What how has the kind of public perception been and like how I guess like out of all the things that people have done some pretty crazy stuff, I think, during the course of the beta, like I was able to join the Discord and I felt very much kind of like a amateur compared to some of these people like MacGyvering these like crazy boxes uh, you know, like in their homes to like get the card scanning stuff to work and kind of what's your experience been with like interacting with the community with the beta?
2: So so that's been that's been a a I guess a really, I'd say bright spot. We were really nervous about doing the beta. Uh, we had a lot of tense conversations internally about how much we should open it up, how many people we should let have access to it. I was in kind of a strange mental space at the time uh, in the early pandemic days. And so I was really advocating for like, let's just give it away to everybody. You know, just like open the floodgates. Who cares? Right. <laughs> um, and, and I was kind of a little bit talked off the ledge on that one, but um but it's, it's been, it's been wild. Like we, so we released it out. Um, and obviously, you know, there's a little bit of a self-selecting group here because these are people who were in the Kickstarter. A lot of people who were backers at like a lifetime tier, right? So these are people who are excited about the product and they're they're early adopter types and stuff, just given that they're on Kickstarter. So we didn't know what would happen because they, they wouldn't have the hardware, right? So they wouldn't have the arm to mount the camera, although people might have ways to mount you know, a phone over their, their desk or whatever. And they wouldn't more importantly have the box, um, the scanning box. So, so as you mentioned, Terrence, like people started cranking out scanning boxes like day one and it was, it was people, you know, messaging me on discord that it says, okay, what are the dimensions? What kind of color, uh, backer do you need? So it'll recognize the cards. Um, and then, you know, people started posting, photos of what they were doing and then sharing tips with other people who are trying to make stuff. And of course everybody is in various stages of, you know, quarantine at that time because this was, you know, March or whatever. And so they were trying to source, the, pay, the the pink color that you need to and guys were going to the grocery store and buying poster board there and like sharing that tip on the Discord so it was it was cool I mean I, I we were we were we felt really good about seeing people trying that stuff and then having good results playing to be honest some pretty complicated games uh, one of the things we asked when we opened the beta was hey maybe maybe try to just play a basic game the first time um, <laughs> you know maybe try Code Names or maybe try you know, pandemic, because it's all card face-up, it's pretty easy to play, there aren't a lot of pieces, and like, I swear, day one, people are like, getting the... Uh, I glo- feel like uh, I saw Gloomhaven, right? Like, yeah, Gloomhaven Gloomhaven on was day one? On. yeah, Gloomhaven was on there. Um What's that game? Blood Rage? What's the name of that game? Rage? Uh It's like a combat game. I can't remember what it's called, but like, the type of thing where people are scanning in like, 150 cards and tokens before they even start playing, right? Jeez. And... And I should have known I should have known that that's what would have happened because we're all, you know, <laughs> board game people. Um, so that's been cool, but it has really kind of um, and this is a blessing in disguise. It, it's, you know, it's highlighted issues and stuff, you know, like I i wouldn't trade it for um, even with the sort of the stressful nature of. Of being the one who's kind of like answering the questions on Discord, Discord twenty four hours a day. I wouldn't trade that because it has it has highlighted a number of issues that we've we've had to clean up now. And to be perfectly honest, we'd rather clean that stuff up now than um, than you know in August or September. So so it's been good, you know, and and it's it's been cool because I've met a lot of really neat people by way of the Discord and and just learned a lot more about what types of games people would want to play. And it's a lot of times it's games that I just would not have even considered. Being somebody would some being something that somebody would want to play on a system like this. So yeah, it's been really beneficial. I'm, I've been very happy with it.
1: I know with Terence here, I've been seeing him post various pictures of him playing all his favorite LCGs on this. So it's been it's been pretty fun to see that and how that works out. Actually, really well.
2: Yeah, it's going to get better. So Terrence, once the deck, once deck support's in there, that's going to be, that's going to be for you. So <laughs> yeah, I'm
0: very much looking forward to that. Uh, I actually, I was playing Marvel Champions LCG on this and like with a coworker of mine, I can, he like was convinced afterwards and became a late backer just so he could use it at work to do like show and tell. Like he wants to use it as a system to do like show and tell at work to show off his electronics. Like, so you can have like the camera thing and then use like the phone mount. And so it was really neat to like see it being used for like non gaming purposes. Um, I don't know if you've ever heard of stuff like that.
2: That's interesting. That that that. So we have been racking our brains. We don't want to spend too much time on it, right? Because we're we're hyper focused on like making a product for gaming, right? Like so. That, so every time we have one of these conversations, and it does happen internally with the team, we sort of like slap ourselves on the wrist and say like. Just produce the product that you're trying to produce. Right. Like one of the big things the reason why we've been, I think, successful so far is 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 a hyper focus on not trying to build an overly generalized tool and really focus on, you know, it's built for gaming purposes and let's let's tune it to work for, for board games and tabletop RPGs. Every time I talk to people, people start throwing out weird, oh, I could use this, you know, for some strange purpose the reason is because there isn't really a good tool and you hit it right on the head with your friend here, Terrence. like, there isn't an easy way to like put something out on a table in a voice, in a, in a video call and like, let people zoom in on it and see it at like really high resolution without sort of like, I guess, taking pictures and sending them pictures, which, you know, is not optimal. You want to be able to move the thing around and let them look at it. Right. So I have heard everything from Boy Scout patch trading you know, like I guess like Boy Scout patch trading is, is a big enough thing where people like do the patch trading online and they want to see the quality of the patch. And that's not easy. So people are always like taking pictures and then they email back and say, oh, flip it over or whatever to the big one that I hear the most is like is like uh, physical whiteboarding. So if Maybe. you've ever tried to like physically whiteboard a meeting on Google Hangouts or whatever, it's a real pain. It The, 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 the quality always looks like junk if you point a camera at it. And people say, oh, if I could just use Vorpal and point the camera at the whiteboard, um, I'd be able to read everything on the whiteboard. Um, And so we're hopeful that maybe it's used for other purposes someday. Uh, Maybe that'll become some other revenue stream or something. But it's not anything that we're really like, uh, you know, going after right now. I'll have to ask you more details about that one, Terrence, after the the recording.
0: Yeah, for sure. Uh, I feel like the Discord approach is probably the right one, where just like, focus on the one thing and then when it's popular and successful, you can like raise a hundred million dollars to then become a general <laughs> solution. Right. right. <laughs> Seems like a pretty good.
2: Yeah. If you guys That's got all. any numbers, you got any numbers for anybody, let me know. <laughs>
1: <laughs> so we mentioned about different games you could play on this. And you've mentioned that there is generally one person who is hosting the game and, and other people are watching it. Is that like the ideal way of approaching it? Or do you all people, all members playing the game need their own copy of the game to be able to play it what have you found as you've been watching the community get into this so the the, you
2: only need one copy of the game is the goal and the the one copy of the game like your host they're the ones who would actually have the subscription to vorpal board we only require a subscription for one person in the session so whoever it is who's who's starting that session they would have the game uh, physically with them and then the remote players wouldn't need to have any components however We have seen people do things in a little bit of a mix mode every once in a while. So Gloomhaven is a great example where we had some people in the discord who actually sent their players home with their tuck boxes full of their character cards, their class cards, and then also like their equipment cards and their action deck or whatever and or their attack modifier deck. And then they were, you know, they would play over Vorpal so they would see the board and they'd move the components around that way. But then the people had their cards physically on their end. And I've seen people do that with uh, journeys in Middle Earth as well. Generally speaking, our our real focused goal is you just have the one copy. The host has the copy. And then um, we've built the tools to let all those remote players interact uh, well enough with that host, you know, via things like pointer sharing. So we can see where everybody's pointing on the table. Um, and then card scanning and component scanning and all that stuff to let those remote players kind of feel like they're feel like they're there or I guess the the second best thing from actually being there I've said a lot about like um, how this is a specialized tool and it is you know it's specialized built for board games but for board games it's it's a pretty general tool to play board games with so it doesn't know the rules as an example right it, it does there's no scripting in it that says, oh, I know this is the spot you put these cards, right? So it, it's, a, it's a general table, almost as if it's like a real table. Um, and so what that means is that people can, can choose to use it in a lot of different ways for the same game. So we'll see people who play Gloomhaven on it one way. We'll see people who play Pandemic and they don't even scan in the cards. They just keep the cards face up on the table and everybody sees them on the table, right? So the system can kind of gracefully degrade to either you're scanning in everything and everything's digital, you know, and everybody's moving around their pieces, or maybe you don't want to do that this time. Or maybe you're playing with a player who would rather not do it or isn't tech savvy and doesn't want to play that way or whatever. You can do it in a more simple fashion.
1: It might be good to maybe elaborate how someone who doesn't have a copy of the game can play a game that requires hand management of some nature, right? Because that's probably the hardest thing to do remote when you don't have a copy of the game.
2: Yeah, sure. Like, so, so the way that the way that the system works is I mentioned a little bit about that scanning box, right? So the way this, the scanning works is, so I I have a smartphone sitting in that scanning box and anything I put on the top of it um, is going to, it it does a little noise, it dings for you. And then uh, it appears in the web interface. And when it appears in the web interface, it appears looking like a card that's face down. And so it just looks like a playing card sitting there that you can drag around and you just see the back of the card. And then any player who's connected to the session can actually digitally pick that up by clicking a button. And when they pick it up, it flips over on their screen, but on everybody else's screen, it stays face down. So those players now have exclusive access to see what that card is. And the big thing is that the local player who has the actual game, they don't see it so the only person who's playing who sees it is that one remote player now that one remote player can choose to show it to other people they can and this is all in the web interface they can give it to other people you can trade you know you can flip it over and show it to somebody for a second and then flip it back we're kind of trying to build sort of generic ways to interact with the cards but that makes it so those remote players can sit there having their own hands um and everybody can sort of play with their own private cards Without having to be, you know, physically present,
1: obviously. Perfect. Yeah, that's a. I feel like that's a distinguishing feature from trying to execute or or play these games with other tools. That it makes it really, really challenging.
2: Yeah, it was the hardest thing to figure out. <laughs> we had a couple of like aha moments when we were like working on this thing. The first one was to uh, allow the the board streaming camera to not just operate as a video camera. It, it can work as a video camera where it's like sending a video feed. But if you want to play a game that has a lot of very, very small text on it, it has a function to allow it to take very high res photos one after another and send those very high res photos instead of the video feed. We call it photo mode. And that was a huge aha moment because I was trying to play Pandemic and some of the city names were a pain to read. And I I remember I was talking to Mike and I said, dude, if I take a picture with my camera, it looks great. But like, if I use this video, it looks awful. And, and then I sort of like scratched my head, like, well, why don't I just take pictures with my camera and send them? And, uh, and so then we, we mocked that up quick and it was like, oh my God, this unbelievable sort of change in the quality of the, the difference in video quality and photo quality is unbelievable. So then we implemented it right away and we're like, okay, well, this is how we're going to do this. And then the other big aha moment was the, the face down card scanning. So at first we were like, all right, we'll scan cards. Uh, just like you're scanning checks for your bank if you use like a smartphone app for your bank or whatever. But then we kept kicking ourselves like, how are we going to do this so you can't see the cards? And that's where I built I built like a this thing out of Legos and stuff like to mount the cards up in the air and all <laughs> sorts of uh, problems. And then um, I actually met with Thad, uh, the hardware member of our team. He was running a manufacturing prototyping uh, center, like an incubator essentially. And I worked through iterations on the design with him and that's how we came up with the current design of the scanning box which um which you can see on our kickstarter page and stuff it's made out of wood it comes apart and folds down we're pretty happy with uh with how it looks in the end
0: yeah i'm very excited for uh
1: the scanning box to come when that does happen so what are some of the best kinds of games that you've been seeing people play on warper like the easiest ones that work great with the system so to
2: me i think there are two well i put D and other tabletop RPGs kind of over to the side. I think we work very well with tabletop RPGs. So the reason being that there isn't a lot of scanning usually. The DM can use their terrain if they have terrain. They can use minis. They can use a grid that they're drawing on if that's the way they play. Essentially, like the flexibility that we offer to a DM to just sort of run things how they normally run things uh, is very good. Um, But so if I move sort of, D&D and, and Tabletop over on the side, when we're talking about board games, to me, the, the games that play the best are party games. So like a game that is, in my opinion, absolutely perfect for the platform and I play it on here all the time is Codenames. And I know that seems ridiculous because it's like Codenames is a pretty simple game, but being able to have, so essentially my wife and I sit at the table and then we have three other couples uh, that we know who join in. So it's you know, it's a four on four it happens to always be husbands versus wives game. And um, <laughs> and it works like absolutely flawlessly. Before we start, we scan in a couple of the um, the little uh, map cards that the clue giver is going to need. And then we're done with scanning. Everything else, we're just playing the game as if it's sitting on our table. And, um, and it works. It just works absolutely perfectly. We played Wavelength that way as well. Um, and that works really well too. The other big one, in my opinion, that we built this thing for um is co-op dungeon crawl type titles i you know every every game that i've had the most fun playing on here is that type of game part of that's just me but i also think part of it is that things like secrecy aren't as important you know like if you're playing Gloomhaven, um it's not like a huge deal that you're sharing information with each other right so um, it's okay if you can see each other's cards if you want to, and you can you can be more cooperative with each other. But but I played a lot of Journeys in Middle Earth. I played a lot of Descent, and I've played a lot of um, of Gloomhaven on here. And I think that it's a great way to bring your party together, where you where you don't have to get together every week. So a lot of times people talk with us about, oh, I can't wait to play that with my brother who lives in California or whatever. Our reality, what we've found is that we actually end up playing with the people who are local to us a lot, too, because it's just hard mm-hmm. to get four people together for three hours to play Gloomhaven. Right. So, right. Um, you know, maybe you get together to play in, in person once a month, but then those other three weeks out of the month where you used to not play, you can actually play sitting in your pajamas, you know, like uh, sitting on your couch for all the remote players. And you don't have to drive to each other's houses or get babysitters if you happen to have kids. So, you know, I think that those types of games, those, those, those party based games where you, and I'm not saying party games, I'm saying a party is in grouping a group of people as a party. Vorpal is really good for getting four people together and playing through a game that you need to get together pretty regularly to play.
0: Do you find it challenging with like, uh, some of the dungeon crawlers, there's a lot of components that you have to potentially scan in, like definitely for journeys in middle of earth, like you. For the remote players, you must, you probably have to scan in their deck of cards, right? Like that they have to shuffle through and uh, draw off of for each skill test.
2: It's a good question, right? So like every game, the first step usually, and probably in the future, what we would have is like a wiki of kind of like recommended ways to play certain games. Because the first step is always like, okay, I got to sit here and think and say, okay, how much am I going to scan in versus not scan in? Um, how much can i pre-scan beforehand because the system does let you pre-scan some stuff and then save it before you go into the game or how much am i going to have to real real-time scan in terms of um journeys in middle earth we actually i real-time scan in the uh, we only play with one remote so i real-time scan in his cards as i'm drawing them when he would normally be drawing them and then when he does skill tests i flip them over underneath the board camera So I end up only scanning in cards when he's prepping his cards, essentially. When we have full deck support, I'm absolutely scanning in the entire deck and just letting him deal with it Um, (laughs) because it's not worth having me scan in cards every time. It'd be much easier for him to shuffle his own deck and, and deal off his own deck the whole time. But that's a temporary problem so once uh i keep saying once decks are ready there are some features that we're still in beta so there are some features that are still under development and uh and decks is probably the biggest of the features in that category so once once deck supports fully in there um, that'll make my life as a local player of journeys in middle earth a lot
0: better uh in your group do you usually only play with like one or two people remote and most people local versus like everyone being remote
2: Um, it varies. So, um, you know, I, I played through like all of pandemic legacy with four remote players. Um, so everybody was in their own location. And then we've played through betrayal legacy with three players all in their own remote, remote location. And we've brought in a fourth every once in a while gloomhaven. I've played with like a couple local and a couple remote. Um, so it's, it's been kind of a variable mix. Um, that's one of the things that we think is a, is a big plus for our tool that it does let you have multiple local players. And those local players don't like need their own computer or whatever right they they're just sitting at the table playing the game and so you can do kind of a mix and match where if one of your players is just not around for for whatever reason you can remote them in um, and everybody else could be sitting at the table although right now since we're we're socially disting distancing that might not be what you're able to do right now but um but yeah it 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 definitely you know it's going to depend on how, how much you enjoy it, I guess, will depend on the game you're playing. So if, if you're trying to play a game where you got to scan in for all the remote players' cards all, like every turn, you're probably not going to have a good time. So you got to think about it a little bit in terms of what game you, you, you want to play.
1: Are there certain games that are very difficult to the point where they're maybe not even possible to play in Vorpal that you run into? Or are ways that you think about improving the experience to help add these difficult-to-play games to the repertoire?
2: It's a good question. So one of them that right now you would you would have a difficult time like roll and writes are a problem, right? We don't have any sort of ability to draw in Vorpal today. We want to add that in the future. But if you're playing a roll and write, you know, you could print out the the little piece of paper that you need to draw on at your house and and the remote players could print you know draw there. But if there's any interaction where they need to see each other's drawings, that's kind of painful.
0: You could do the screen sharing thing right on the mobile app in theory yeah you could, you could in theory
2: yeah so there is there is screen sharing support from the mobile app so you could have people sort of like screen sharing their screens in and doing drawing that way. We want to build it right into the web app um, as well. one of the games that I really want to play on the system is cartographers um, by um, by Thunderworks and uh, and so that's like a target game for me the other one that that is is it, it's still going to be tough even when decks are in place games that have a lot of very complicated deck setup or deck interaction are always going to be tricky. So, so you know, uh, an example, right? So like, you know how you set up the deck in Pandemic where first you you deal out, you know, four four or five or six smaller decks and then you shuffle an Epidemic card into each of those decks and then you put the decks back together and now you have your deck, right? That isn't a normal shuffle. That, that's not a button you can just click to say, shuffle my cards. If you need to equidistantly place cards inside a deck for some reason, that's going to be, more work for us to build that into a way that you can do that easily inside the software. Or let's say you need to have a way where you can easily look through cards until you find a specific card and then take that card and put it on the bottom of the deck. You know, you guys, I'm sure, played lots of games, so you know a lot of weird deck stuff that happens in games. In our initial implementation of decks... We're not going to be able to do all of that stuff fluidly. And so we'll be iterating to improve and, and add more, you know, capabilities of decks, but that one's going to be tough. The other one that I think will always be tough is real-time games. So if there's anything where you need to move stuff around quickly, precisely, if the remote players are going to have such a, they're going to be at such a disadvantage because they're moving the cards around by clicking them and dragging them around and the local players are, you know, doing it all. With physical pieces, and, and you're never going to be as fast doing it with your mouse and all that as you would with your two hands. So I think dexterity or or real time games are going to be tough, and then really heavy, complicated deck deck management type games.
0: Yeah, I can't imagine playing like Seal Team Flex on this. Right? Maybe maybe, yes. maybe I'll play. With <laughs> maybe he can shoot for me.
2: Yeah, and I did just see the new announcement for the uh, the uh, Jamie St- uh Segmeyer announced the new Stone game is like real time. So I was like, oh man, <laughs> that's a bummer.
1: So we've been talking about a lot of different features that Vorpal supports, but like what is the one feature you're the most proud of?
2: Ooh, that's a good question. You know, I think for me, it's probably the card scanner. So that that thing was a nightmare to work through, probably because a lot of it was me learning as I went, but I I, I didn't have a big background in computer vision algorithms. So uh, so we we use computer vision to actually see and pick up the cards and then automatically crop them. So that that includes cropping to strange shapes, right? So you can take like a, a mini and put it in there and the system does its best to automatically cut it out. So it's a transparent PNG with the outline of the mini or the outline of the octagon or the hexagon or the square or whatever. So that lets you, you know, scan in a circle token and get it into the game. That was something that it took a lot of trial and error on my part, and maybe somebody who is really good, you know, with computer vision and did that as, as their day to day job, that uh, it would have been a little bit of an easier job. But for me, that was uh, that was a lot of work, and a lot of it was based on the total size of the the possibility space. So, the first version of this, I had a white background in the card scanner. And I thought, okay, well, that's how the check scanning apps work. They say, put the stuff against a dark background, right? And then they'll scan in the rectangle. And the problem is, is as I'm sure you guys probably think immediately, there are lots of, uh, there are lots of games that have dark components or they have black outlines on the outside of the components. So if you use a white background, now you can't scan a ton of cards. If you use a black background, you can't scan a ton of cards. I thought, okay, I'll use a green screen, right? Cause people use that for, um, you know, for video. And, um, and that's really good for skin tone, but it's really bad for scanning in cards (laughs) because there's tons (laughs) of green cards and there's tons of cards that have blue that also has a green component in it. Uh, What we ended up settling on is this is a, is a bright kind of neon pink. I think I mentioned it earlier in the, in the discussion. Um, And that's that we found that to be a color that's rare. It's a color that lots of colors will very easily be recognizable against. But even with that, it took a lot of trial and error to be able to build our algorithm for finding those cards, cutting them out, and then quickly getting them into the web browser. Um, so the phone does all that work and then sends it to the web browser quickly. Because if you have to sit there, right, and wait for like ten seconds for the card to scan in, like it's it's just going to kill the whole flow, and you're not going to have a good time. So sure, um, sure. I would say that that. That one I'm probably most proud of. It's not the it's not the it's not the coolest feature in the world. Although I think the first time people use it and they're like, "Holy smokes!" It's scanning this stuff in. Like that'll be a kind of a real sort of magic moment for people. So I yeah, I'm, I'm happy with that.
0: How long does it like once I start scanning? Like, what's the turnaround time until I see the card pop up?
2: It's usually about a second, maybe less. You know, it depends on it depends on how big the card is that you're scanning in. So smaller stuff because it you know the, across the wire when it sends the data. Um, if it's a little, if it's a little, you know, circle or something, it's sending, it's sending less data, but yeah, I'd say generally speaking, it's, it's about a second. So you can, you can hammer through like a deck to scan it all in pretty quickly.
0: Oh, that's great to hear. How do you, I, I remember seeing on the discord people complaining about, uh, uh, as great as like the, the pink is like, I think like the splendor, there's like that splendor token that people were talking about. Yeah.
2: People were talking about that red splendor token. Yeah. So yeah. So it's a good question, right? So we we target a really sort of like a tight band of pink. And then we identify the, the borders and we bring in the card. That's one of the parts of beta that's been tough because people have, have built their own boxes and those are cool. But there's a ton of variables in the building of those boxes that really convinced us to build our own. And the biggest being the light source. So we tuned the algorithm to work with a certain temperature light source. And so... If you put like a real warm LED light inside the box, it makes the pink not look pink anymore. Or if you put a really cool LED light in the box or whatever, it it changes the color temperature. Um, And then also the phone's um, automatic white balancing plays in here as well. One of the things that's been tough for us to watch and sort of support is people trying to build their own and then saying like, I can't get this stuff scanned in or it scans in weird. It kind of cuts it up a little bit we are confident that when people get sort of the box that has our light in it that is the the right you know kind of distance from the phone and has the glass one of the things that also was very tough to source was this particular type of anti-reflective glass you know that that's one that i when when i get those people talking about it i'm sort of like ah i know that it's tough right now but you know when when you get the actual hardware you're going to have a much better experience scanning cards you know there are there are cards that we've had issues with in the past the biggest one that i've never been able to get to scan in cleanly if you want to know the one that is like in my nightmares it is in tiny towns there's a purple or pinkish tower for your special creation and that piece I have never gotten to scan in well. So the way that I do it is that I put a little black piece of paper behind it and scan it in that way. But, um, <laughs> nice. but everything else we've been able to bring in successfully, you know, and that includes like pretty heavily red cards. Uh, and those are the ones that on the Discord people will have difficulty with, you know, stuff that kind of bleeds close to red or pink. I'm pretty confident that when they get the actual box, they're going to have way, 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 way better experience.
0: Are you going to ship like a little black paper thing, I guess, for the chance that there are? <laughs> It just like ple- like it's perfectly cuts the size. So it's just like oh, if you have problems, please insert this.
1: Uh,
2: we okay. you know, we we've chatted about about that sort of stuff. We've also chatted about shipping maybe like a like a gray a gray card for helping with white white balance. We're not a hundred percent sure on how we'll you know how we'll do that. The things that are coming in the box for sure is like a hand scanning sheet as well. And what I mean by that is like a piece of cardstock that's also the neon pink that you can use to scan larger components if they don't fit into the box you know, maybe player mats or, you know, progress trackers or whatever that might not fit in under uh, the scanning surface. Or if you're playing a game where you don't want to get the box out and it's a game that it doesn't matter that you can leave the cards face up, you can use the, the scanning sheet to do that. But yeah, I don't, I don't know if we'll include a black piece. That's a good idea. I'll take that back to the team and I'll
0: see, you, Terrence. Uh, while we're talking about, I guess, features, I had some feature requests if you're open to them. Yeah, yeah, sure. So one of the things that... I both love about this system as I've done through the beta. So I actually went and bought like a little phone mount for my like $500 tripod that I use for taking actual photos just so I can have a thing that can hang over the table. But I've run into kind of just like, turns out phone cameras as great as they are still kind of suck to some degree, especially around the peripheral edges. Like, so even if you're doing photo streaming, which I've done for basic LCG stuff that I've been playing, like definitely the edge kind of has like, unless you're using like a wide angle lens, like you kind of get kind of blurriness, I think around the edges of, and it's much sharper in the center. And I'm wondering, are there plans for basically allowing like a computer to hook a camera into the computer in addition to the kind of the normal webcam where you can potentially buy like higher quality kind of photo stuff uh, or video cameras?
2: So yeah, that's 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 one that comes up pretty regularly. I think that that's somewhere we will go in the future because it's come up enough where I think people would make use of it. The one thing that is a bummer and this is why we we haven't really done anything with it yet, it will require an actual application installed on the end user machine because the browsers limit how many cameras you can connect into a session at the same time. So the way that we would do it is you'd use the you'd use your web browser, you'd connect in with your with your webcam and then we would have an application running on the the local machine that could use your nicer camera that's also connected to that machine. We've also had people just bring that up because they would love to not have to have their phone mounted over the table because they just don't they want it in their pocket or whatever, right? Um, and so they've said, "Well, can I just put a webcam over the board?" Our answer is always the same. It's like, okay, well. We can't have the two webcams in the same session at the same time from the same computer. So I think based on how many people have sort of brought that up, I would not be surprised if that is something that we do in the future. It won't be in place for the scope of the initial launch, that's for sure. But it would be a nice way to make it so you don't need an extra phone if you do want to go that route. And then the other thing that is coming in the very soon future, in the next hopefully four or five days, is tap to zoom or tap to focus and auto expose instead of auto exposing and auto focusing across the entire image space, which is what it does right now. And that might help in an instance where you are getting issues locally where you're not getting sharpness. What you describe is different. It's just camera phones are very good at focusing on like one point pretty much. But what, what might help for some other people where they say, oh, I laid out my, t- my table and my, it's not exactly even and I really want to focus like right here they can tap on the screen and just focus on that particular spot.
0: You were talking about the photo stream, which is definitely the mode that I use because I play a lot of card games. And definitely, you can't do that very well over the video stream, like you've talked about. Are there plans? I, I guess, like, I don't know what the limitations are of like how fast or slow you can take those pictures. But I know when I was playing with Steve, it was, I think, a little annoying, uh, but very, you know, doable. Of just there is that delay, and it kind of varies, like depending on where you happen to catch when the next photo would take place? Like, are there, have you hit like the limit of like how fast you can actually take photos or?
2: So we haven't hit the limit of how fast we can take photos. The limiting factor generally is we wait until we know for sure that the photos have been received by all the external parties before we start sending another one. And so what usually is happening is that the camera could be taking photos faster if we, if we send them kind of willy-nilly, it ends up like essentially like flooding the pipe. There are some optimization p- possibilities there for the future in terms of um, the way that we're sending that data across potentially. Like we're trying to send very high-res photos so we don't want to compress them too much because then once we start compressing them, then you start getting little artifacts in your images. And then when people zoom in on them, they don't like the way they look. So it's a little bit of a balancing act of size reduction, while still sending across the wire quickly. But the cameras, if you have a modern smartphone, the cameras are definitely not the limiting factor. So the good news is that if we are able to iterate and optimize on that network piece of it, will be able to take pictures much quicker on the camera side without any sort of camera enhancement. Even older camera phones can take those photos really, really, really fast. It's just the the transmission is the slower part.
0: So is there a trade off then if like I have a lower resolution photo, it will update faster then?
2: Yes, that is correct, yep. And that's, and the interesting thing, like one of the things that we've kind of discovered just in, in this use, right? Like even sending like a 16, let's just say top of my head, like a 1600 by 1200 photo, In a lot of cases that looks pretty darn good right so when 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 video is coming across the wire that's obviously getting uh encoded um and and um and you get a lot of artifacts right so the way that video gets sent across the internet it's not sending the whole frame every time it's just sending the differentials uh for a lot of those frames right just what's changing and so it does its best to try to like restitch the that image together on the receiving end and sometimes you get weird stuff on the screen, right? So with photos, when you're sending just a photo, it's taken one picture and it sends that one picture across. So you can get like a lot of detail in there that in a video frame, you're not gonna be able to see. And so even taking a photo at like 1600 by 1200 and sending that across, a lot of times people are like, wow, that looks way, way, way better. And I could just stream that way. And so when we do photo mode at like a lower res like that, even that seems a significant jump over say a 1080p video stream um, just because of that compression that happens on the video stream.
1: Yeah, it makes a lot of sense. Fascinating. What made you
0: guys think about having a Trello board that, I mean, makes sense for software development, but like to actually have it open and kind of accessible to the public of what things are being worked on. I feel like a lot of other kind of Kickstarters uh, in general are, you know, transparent and communicative, but probably not nearly as open on like what they're working on and kind of what's coming and planning.
2: It's uh, yeah. I mean, that one that one also was was a. So we want to have in the future. It all started from our our thoughts about kind of how we would want to run post um, post live, right? So we envision that this is a product that is being iterated on and improved and changed over time and growing with our user base, right? And so we want to make sure that the changes that we are making in that when we're in that phase right are are a certain amount of them are coming from the community because they're the ones and the ones who are passionate about using the system a lot of our plans in terms of how we want to grow is going to be based on people using the system and then sharing it with other people and terrence you used it with a friend and that friend pre-ordered right like that's how we think we're going to see um, uh, some organic growth as people play with their friends play with their family those people say, holy moly, I can play with my friends, and they buy a, a, a subscription to Vorpal. And so one of the big things that we want to have, and I think it helps to foster a sense of community, is telling people what we're working on. To a certain extent, we don't put everything on there. So the the cat's out of the bag. There is a private uh, Trello as well. Um, <laughs> a public issues list that we, that we maintain. And then also letting people get their input into what we work on. So see what we're working on. And then actually say, hey, this is the stuff that I think is most important. And, and if we hear the most on those, on those things, um, including them. The other thing is with Kickstarter, I, I've backed a lot of Kickstarters, and I really don't like it when people go like totally silent. Not that I don't necessarily trust that they'll get it done, but like I think for me at least, a big part of like doing Kickstarter is sort of feeling like you're behind the scenes a little bit. Like, you know, you get to watch the process. You get to see the people go through the the troubles and the things they solve or whatever, right? Like Kickstarter is not a store. Kickstarter is, you know, giving money to somebody to try to make this idea happen. And I think trying to make the idea happen is oftentimes, for lack of a better term, like entertaining to see what people are up to and, and sort of follow along, for me at least. And so I wanted to make sure that like, we were accessible throughout this whole thing. Um, one, because I think it'll, it'll be more entertaining for people who backed us and, and who were interested in the product. But also I think like if we if we hit a snag somewhere, right? Like there's a possibility that we hit some snag that is gonna delay the, the release or is going to have me have to come back and say, hey, this feature we thought we were gonna be able to do, we're not gonna be able to do for the following reasons or whatever. Sure. You don't have that ability to do that credibly if you just disappear for six months and then come back and say, oh, hey, we're going to be late. You know what I mean? Like, I I, I feel like being transparent up front about what you're working through is, is how you build trust amongst your user base. And when something bad happens, you know, they, they trust that you're telling them the truth or whatever. So part of it was I thought it would be interesting to people. And part of it was just trying to build like a good rapport with our user base in case, you know, we have to dip into that trust we built up with people in the future. I hope we don't have to, but it's possible.
0: Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Feels like a bunch of software engineers trying to run a board game startup.
2: (laughs) (laughs) That's exactly right. Yeah, yes.
1: So with our listeners who may be tuning into this and maybe hearing about Vorpah for the first time, uh, how would they go about, or what are the options for acquiring or purchasing the Vorpah board?
2: So we, we do have um, late pledges still open, you can call them late pledges or pre-orders or whatever. Um, and we do that via like a game found, it's a pledge manager, sort of like backer kit or any of the other ones that are available, Crowdox or whatever. And people can go and actually get in on the Kickstarter uh, as if they had backed it and be in that first production run. And so that would include the arm, the box, a couple months of service. Uh, and if you want to find details about that, you can go to vorpalboard.com or, um, or you can find our project still out on Kickstarter, the project out on Kickstarter has like all the videos and assets the same way that we when we when we uh, ran the Kickstarter, and then that'll link you out to GameFound to, to be a late backer. If, if somebody wants to be a late backer and, and get it on the beta, technically, we were closing up a new accesses, uh, new access to the beta at the end of uh, June, beginning of July we kind of have a little bit of a grace period here for the next you know week or so where if people do get into the late backers uh, they can jump into the beta. So if any of your listeners jump into the and, and become a, a game found backer or something reach out on Discord or, or reach out to me on the Kickstarter page or whatever and we can we can get you into the beta uh, but we are we are at the point where we're kind of closing down new access to the beta just because uh, where most of kind of uh, the teaching and the handholding comes is like when people first join the beta. And uh, we have a big enough beta user base right now that uh, we have people using it and stuff regularly. So we're going to sort of just keep that set through the, through the rest of the development period. But, but that's the best way to find us. And then um, if you're curious, just because a lot of this, obviously this is a podcast, right? So you can't see this thing. But we have a ton of uh, gameplay videos on YouTube and Twitch and stuff if you want to see a bunch of different games being played with it because we, we try to break it as much as we can and just try it with different games. So if you have a, a particular game style or type that you're curious about, I bet we probably have a, an example of us playing something like it on, uh, on YouTube.
1: So once this uh, game GameFound uh, service ends or you wrap it up, are you going to have somewhere where people can purchase the product after the Kickstarter fulfillment? Or are you planning to sell more hardware? What, what are the future plans in that regard?
2: Uh, we'll be selling it on our website going forward. So we... As part of the Kickstarter, we did a um, we did a lifetime tier, and that was exclusive to the Kickstarter. It let people pay a higher up, upfront price so they don't have to ever pay for um, a monthly fee to use the system. And we did it for people who were interested in jumping in. I don't know if we'll ever offer it again. Right now, we don't have any plans to offer it again. But what that did allow us to do is we're going to be able to produce more units as part of this first production run than just enough to cover... You know, just the Kickstarter backers. So we will have a, a a set of units on the shelf that we'll be able to sell through. Now we've been getting uh, late backers that have been sort of chewing through, um, chewing through the those that initial um, manufacturing run as well. But our goal is to continue to do manufacturing runs of the hardware. It's possible that in the future we might do like a pre-order to to help fund those manufacturing runs it's all going to depend a little bit on how the cost model ends up shaking out in terms of all of our um, supplies and stuff but people will be able to buy hardware on the website and then the subscription part of this of the system is five dollars a month currently for the uh just the host we're still i don't want i don't want to make any sort of commitments either way because we're still discussing it internally on if there will be the ability to just get a subscription Without, any, without purchasing any of the hardware. That's that's something that people bring up, they ask about, and, and we're not 100% sure which way we'd go. Terrence, that's a good question for you. I'm going to turn this podcast around. <laughs> what, do you, sure. what would you think about the idea of, as a user, you've used the beta, you don't have any of the hardware. As somebody, would you say, oh, it would make sense for you to have just spent you know, the monthly fee to use the system as is without purchasing any of the hardware in addition
0: yeah i mean i think it makes a lot of sense just because like even in just the beta it's been a step up over like you mentioned the other alternatives of like what people are already using today right like i think you've seen all the articles on like how to play board games over zoom now because that's like the cool new hotness right and uh, the fact that you can actually see someone's face uh, oftentimes when you're playing with someone if, if they have webcam over the board like you can't actually see them and so, like, being able to see their face and, like, having the thing. And, and admittedly, like, getting a, like, phone arm that mounts over a table, like, is not that expensive. Like, it's probably, like, a 20 or $30 buy-in uh, just yep. to get in. And so, I think that makes it a lot more accessible. Uh, just, like, you can buy a thing on Amazon. And maybe it's not, like, the optimal experience. But, like, just what I have in the beta is already better than, like, Pretty much all the other alternatives uh unless you're gonna like kind of do a whole custom thing right um and so i think that's worth it in and of itself uh obviously like card scanning is significantly harder so one of the kind of trade-offs there is like how much are people gonna macgyver their own stuff there to kind of do that um but then there's probably like a whole community potentially that can build around like homegrown stuff around things they want to build to make things work with the right And I I guess I'm not sure like how much you want to foster some of that stuff, but I I do think the service in of itself is worth, worth having without kind of the hardware, just because you can get some of it fairly cheaply.
2: Yeah. And you know that we, we, we kind of, this is the exact same thinking that we go through internally, right? Where we say the same stuff. It's like, you know, we're not doing anything earth shattering with the arm. We're, we're sourcing a nice combination of elements for the arm that is something that's going to be painful to do on your own. You'd have to buy a bunch of different pieces and put them together, essentially. But yeah, you could get something similar off Amazon for you're exactly right, 30 bucks, right? You put it together and, and you could run with it. Um, the the one thing that we just always have in the back of our mind is like, will people have a bad experience that turns them off from the platform because they don't have the scanning box, as an example, right? So it's like we're kind of, we're, we're debating with ourselves of are we protecting customers from themselves, essentially, by by sort of forcing them to go one way or the other. The jury is definitely still out for us in terms of which way we're gonna go. But you mentioned those articles about like how to play games on Zoom and stuff. You cannot believe how furious that, 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 we're, <laughs> that all of that happened. You know, Of course, like it was like uh, every week I feel like either my mother or my father-in-law or whatever was like sending me like a Washington Post article about how to like play games on like different systems. And I'm sitting there kicking myself, like, if we had this system out three months ago, we'd be in these articles, you know? So, yeah, that was uh, that was a tough few weeks to watch all those how-to-play games on different uh, video systems.
0: Yeah, I mean, I, I guess the, the, like, I struggle with this with software development as a whole, too, because, like, you want to deliver the optimal experience all the time, but you can't always. And uh, one of the things I think for the you and the team to think about is, Uh, for those people where like maybe it is a suboptimal experience and maybe they try it and you know they don't uh fall in love with it and you know don't continue using it like out of all those people would they have bought the hardware i guess to start with and tried it at all and i guess what like what percent of those people try it and then find it's like good enough and maybe that they get into a point where it's like, oh, like, I really like this, but I actually want like the card scanning feature and I don't want to build my own box or, you know, all those things where it is like kind of a, like maybe an upgrade or premium option where it's like, oh, I, I want like the Vorpal, the full on Vorpal setup because uh, I like what I see.
2: Yeah, that's actually, that, that's a good point. I mean, that, that that's a right way to frame of mind there, right? Is like, do you want $0 trying to get $75 or do you want maybe 15 dollars right like if if we're looking at it purely cynically from a business perspective i would much rather somebody have tried it and spent a little bit of money uh over just never trying it right because i do think that you're exactly right the video stuff is solid it lets you bring in a bunch of people we let you move their cameras around and sort of size them however you want and like i feel like that's a immediate upgrade even without the even without the card scanning i'd agree with you i think it's better than what you would get trying to use other systems so so, yeah, and then maybe we convert a certain percentage of those into people who buy hardware. So, you know, that that is an internal debate. If, if you were to, um, you know, threaten me with uh, with pain or death uh, to try to get an answer out of me, I would say we probably will be offering people to be able to do a subscription option without the hardware. But we're we're not we're not there to make any sort of uh, definite announcement yet.
1: Well, this will wrap up our interview with James about the Vorpal board. So thanks, listeners, for joining in. And thanks, James, for joining us on this interview.
2: Hey, no problem. I had a great time. Thanks for having me. I appreciate it.
1: And Terrence, always a pleasure to have you on. Uh, Yeah. Anytime
0: you want to have a really long episode, feel free to invite me.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Well, thanks for listeners for tuning in and we'll see you at the next stop. Thanks for listening to another episode of
0: the one-stop co-op shop podcast. Please check out our YouTube channel at one-stop co-op shop. If you want to reach out to us, the best place to talk to us all is on the Slack. See the show notes for details. Also, you can support us on Patreon. Check out patreon.com slash one stop. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you all next week with another Top 5 list.